I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You are listening to a London Review of Books podcast. The modern Conservative Party is never happier than when Labour has a unilateral disarmer as its leader. In 1986, Margaret Thatcher arrived at her party's annual conference in Bournemouth with a spring in her step, despite having endured months of bruising political infighting in the aftermath of the Westland affair. She promptly fell over a manhole cover and sprained her ankle, but even this did little to dampen her spirits. The reason for her good mood was that over the previous two weeks, both the Liberal and Labour Party conferences had voted in favour of unilateral nuclear disarmament. In the case of the Liberals, this merely confirmed Thatcher's view that they were not to be taken seriously, particularly as the vote set the members at odds with the leadership of the alliance and represented a direct rebuke of David Owen's much more hawkish SDP. Labour was different. The Labour Party will never die was one of Thatcher's mantras. What Labour did mattered because it was the only alternative party of government. And in this case, the party members were in tune with the leadership. Neil Kinnock, who had spent the past few years painstakingly trying to distance himself from the militant elements of his movement, was nonetheless unwilling or unable to give up his personal commitment to unilateralism. He later said that even if he had wanted to, his wife Glenys wouldn't have allowed it. The party might have survived, but his marriage wouldn't have. Thatcher pounced. She used her conference speech to excoriate Kinnock for his pusillanimity. A future Labour government had waved the white flag before it had even arrived in office. Exposed to the threat of nuclear blackmail, she told the conference, there would be no option but surrender. She contrasted the weakness of Kinnock's position with that of more robust Labour politicians of an earlier generation, Gateskill, Bevan, who had defied their party's wishful thinking on matters of national defence. They had been patriots. Kinnock, by implication, was not. The Tory High Command no longer needed to come up with a fresh campaign blueprint for the election it hoped to call the following year. It had this one on standby, just waiting for the occasion. By chance, the party conference in Bournemouth took place a few days before the Reykjavik summit between Reagan and Gorbachev convened to discuss ways of limiting their respective nuclear arsenals. Thatcher used the promise of this event to drive her message home. Reagan, she insisted, could negotiate because he started from a position of strength. Kinnock's strategy would toss all that away, or at least Britain's chance of playing any meaningful role in the discussions. Does anyone imagine that Mr Gorbachev would be prepared to talk at all if the West had already disarmed? She asked her audience, entirely confident of the answer. But in the event, something unexpected happened. Though she liked Reagan and was readily charmed by him, Thatcher had always been a little suspicious of his occasional flights of idealistic fancy, 
particularly when it came to nuclear weapons. Luckily, as she saw it, the more hard-headed Gorbachev would be on the other side of the table. And the president was surrounded by seasoned advisers who would be sure to keep his feet on the ground. So Thatcher was horrified when she discovered what had actually transpired in Iceland. Following hours of increasingly testy discussion about trade-offs between different categories of weapon, Reagan said in frustration that none of this would matter if we eliminated all nuclear weapons. Immediately, Gorbachev replied, we can do that. We can eliminate them. Reagan's Secretary of State George Shultz, sitting in on the conversation, couldn't hold his tongue. Let's do it, he said. The implications of this sudden meeting of minds were, as one observer put it, cosmic. Within a matter of moments, the future prospects of the human race had changed. And so had Thatcher's prospects of squashing Kinnock at the next election. When they heard the news from Reykjavik, Thatcher's inner circle quickly went into damage limitation mode. Their great fear was that Labour's agenda would suddenly sound as though it were in line with the unfolding logic of superpower politics, and the Tories would be the ones out on a limb. In particular, how would the government sell the expensive Trident nuclear submarine programme, the cornerstone of its defence policy, to the British people if the Americans were talking about doing away with nuclear weapons altogether? Thatcher therefore decided to present any progress on disarmament achieved at Reykjavik as a product of Reagan's hawkishness rather than his peacenik instincts. She argued that Gorbachev had blinked first because of Reagan's insistence that the Strategic Defence Initiative, SDI or Star Wars, wasn't up for negotiation. This was somewhat hypocritical. Thatcher had long been suspicious of Reagan's attachment to SDI because she thought it diluted the focus on the only sort of deterrence that really mattered, having greater firepower than the enemy. She treated it as one of Ronnie's foibles. Now, though, she clung fiercely to SDI as the sole surviving stick with which the Americans could beat the Russians into submission. With hindsight, that is the way many cold warriors came to see it. SDI allowed Reagan to outspend and thereby outmuscle the Soviets. But Thatcher's conversion to its merits was evidence of panic. She had to find something that left Kinnock on the wrong side of the argument, and she was no longer in a position to be picky. At the same time, she was determined to exploit her close relationship with Reagan to bring him back into line. That was something Kinnock could never hope to match. She had more clout in the White House than any other world leader, never mind a leader of the opposition. This advantage was to be rammed home the following year when Kinnock paid a trip to Washington and Reagan's team humiliated him, allocating him just 25 minutes of the president's time and then ending the meeting five minutes early to keep Maggie sweet. Thatcher secured an invitation to Camp David, where she intended to remind Reagan of some hard political truths. Her principal aide, Charles Pohl, drafted a memo in which he laid bare the core of the argument she would need to get across to the president. The emphasis comes from Thatcher's annotations of the text. You will cause me very real political difficulties if you pursue your proposal for eliminating ballistic missiles too actively. In our people's mind, it will raise two questions. Isn't Labour right after all in wanting to get rid of nuclear weapons? 
And why on earth should we pay out all that money for Trident if it's going to be abolished in 10 years? The next British general election could turn on these points, so you must help me deal with these arguments. In sum, worrying about the future of humanity is all very well, but what about the Labour Party? This episode gives an insight into Thatcher's remarkable strengths and weaknesses as a politician. Her mission at Camp David was a success, in her own eyes at least. She managed to get agreement to a joint Anglo-American statement that reaffirmed the necessity for effective nuclear deterrence based upon a mix of systems. Though nothing was said explicitly, it was enough to convince her that Trident was safe. Cosmic disarmament was back in its box. She was helped by the fact that just before she arrived, the story broke in a Lebanese newspaper that the Reagan administration had been secretly engaged in selling weapons to Iran in exchange for the release of hostages, the beginnings of the Iran-Contra scandal. This brought Reagan back to earth with a bump and forced a hurried denial, which Thatcher knew was untrue, given the briefing she had had from GCHQ about what the Americans were really up to. Reagan found himself in no position to withstand Thatcher's potent mix of moral certainty and brazen flattery. She offered him her unflinching support over his domestic difficulties on the basis that anything which weakens you weakens America and anything that weakens America weakens the whole free world. At the same time, she reminded the president and his advisers that without a continuing nuclear shield, American protection of Western Europe was worthless. The fantastical ideas coming out of Reykjavik, she told Schultz in a private meeting, would cause you to lose me and the British nation. Thatcher had an extraordinary ability to reconcile her deepest convictions with her practical political interests. She genuinely believed that nuclear weapons were a force for good and the sole guarantor of the peace that had lasted in Europe since 1945. She also knew that these beliefs put her in an excellent position to exploit Labour's weaknesses on defence, so long as nothing happened to disturb the assumptions on which they rested. She was profoundly incurious about the reasons those assumptions should be coming under threat. She didn't want to think about what had moved Reagan and Gorbachev to make their leap in the dark. She just wanted them back in their traditional roles. She had no desire to live in a world where her personal principles and her private interests were at odds with each other. She was a conservative. Charles Moore's recounting of this episode reveals the strengths and weaknesses of his biography as it arrives at the apogee of Thatcher's power. He is excellent on the high politics and the potency of personal connections. Pohl, who provides the source for some of the most intimate material, is in many ways the presiding spirit hovering over this volume. The mischievous but utterly loyal courtier, who seems to relish deploying his formidable intelligence on causes he need never think through for himself. He luxuriates in the tight confines of his mistress's imagination. He can gossip, he can settle scores, he can compose waspish character sketches, he can rearrange the pieces of the puzzle to his heart's delight. What he doesn't have to worry about is why they are solving the puzzle in the first place. 
Thatcher's own lack of curiosity about the forces at work in the society that she seeks to govern permeates this book. The result is that much of the history recounted here is airless, trapped inside the Downing Street bubble. Because this is the second volume of three, and it ends arbitrarily with Thatcher's decisive victory at the 1987 election, it's hard not to read it in the light of what we know is coming. It is haunted by the ghosts of the future. Intimations of Thatcher's own political mortality are everywhere, not least during the 1987 election campaign, when her increasing crankiness drove those around her to the brink of despair. Norman, listen to me. We're going to lose this fucking election. You're going to go. I'm going to go. The whole thing is going to go. David Young, the Secretary of State for Employment, memorably told the then party chairman, Norman Tebbit, a week before polling day. He said this not because there was any sign that the voters wanted Kinnock as Prime Minister, but because Young had been spending too much time with Thatcher to believe they could still want her. Luckily for him, they had only had to put up with her on their TV screens. The really ghostly presence, however, is John Major, the man who was destined to replace her after first Howe and then Heseltine had wielded the knife. Though Major is barely three years from becoming Prime Minister by the end of this volume, he barely merits a mention in it. Thatcher first properly notices him right at the end, during the 1987 election campaign, when he appears at her daily press conferences as the Minister with Responsibility for Social Security. Rosencrantz is going to inherit the Crown. But you wouldn't guess it from anything here. Those jostling to be first in line to replace Cameron should take note. There are other eerie presentiments of current politics. Leon Britton, when he falls, is pursued from office by nasty rumours about his sexual history. There is nothing in Moore's account to give them much credence, but plenty of evidence of the nasty undercurrents that may have fuelled them. At the time of the Westland affair, when the backbenches were starting to chunter that Britain was not sound, Alan Clark picked up on the word coming out of the 1922 committee, too many Jew boys in the cabinet. Britain may also have been the victim of Cold War dirty tricks. Michael Bettany, the MI5 officer caught trying to spy for the Soviet Union, was said to have revealed in the course of his interrogation that Moscow had information about Mr Leon Britton's life that laid him open to blackmail. When the Cabinet Secretary checked with MI5, he discovered that Bettany had said no such thing. But merely by inquiring, he helped to keep the whispers alive. Most conspiracy theories have long roots, and they fold back into earlier conspiracy theories, so that the point where one ends and another begins is hard to discern. Anti-Semitism is almost always part of the mix. The contemporary politician who is most present in these pages is Jeremy Corbyn, despite the fact that his name never comes up. Corbyn first got elected to the Commons in 1983, and for the duration of Thatcher's second term in office was a minor player on the other side of every major domestic battle she fought, manning the barricades. Indeed, he represented her enemy within. For Thatcher, the IRA, the NUM 
and the hard-left Labour councils were all of a piece. Each sought to supplant parliamentary government with direct action and threats of violence. At the 1984 Conservative Conference in Brighton, she had been planning to deliver a stinging attack on Scargill and the NUM leadership, whom she regarded as an organised revolutionary minority, determined to subvert the rule of law. She intended her audience to understand that what she had to say applied to Ken Livingstone's GLC as well. When an IRA bomb exploded in her hotel the night before she was due to give her speech, nearly killing her and succeeding in killing five others, she was determined to give it anyway. She didn't feel any need to change it. She could simply extend what she wanted to say about the NUM and the GLC to include the IRA. She told the shell-shocked delegates, The nation faces what is probably the most testing crisis of our time, the battle between the extremists and the rest. The nation will meet that challenge. Democracy will prevail. They thought she was talking about her would-be assassins. In fact, she was just reading the words that had been written before the bomb went off. Corbyn would have agreed with her. Not about what counts as democracy, of course, but about the linkages between her most militant opponents. The NUM, the GLC and the IRA had common cause in his mind as well. Her enemies were his friends. His friends were her enemies. Corbyn was, and is, her mirror image, joining together the same dots as she did to produce the inverse of her tightly organised worldview. In the first chapter of this book, attempting to identify the consistent set of values that guided her actions, Moore calls Thatcher a liberal imperialist. Corbyn is an anti-imperialist. Thatcher sided with American power. Corbyn with those he considers the victims of American power. Thatcher befriended Saudi Arabia and its royal family, whom she viewed as useful trading partners and a force for stability in the Middle East. Corbyn used his first conference speech as leader to launch an attack on the Saudi regime for its abuses of human rights. His friends in the region are the Iranians, whom he sees as trying to emerge from a history of colonial exploitation. Thatcher was determined to keep hold of Trident. Corbyn will do whatever he can to get rid of it. The people who voted for Corbyn in the Labour election did so for a wide variety of reasons. Taking up the fights of the mid-1980s mattered for some of them, but perhaps not many, and only those with long memories. A great deal has changed since then. But some things haven't. The Conservative Party is still never happier than when Labour has a unilateral disarmer as its leader. Thanks for listening. For more, go to lrb.co.uk.